Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. This is the OKS Trapper, part of the OKS Podcast Network, with host Zach Hansen, author of Turning Feral. Hear stories, lessons, and fireside chats through a journey of hunting, trapping, and wilderness living in the modern age. And howdy, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the OKS Trapper Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Hansen, and before we dive in today, I want to talk with you about fitness. Whether you are in tip-top shape or still mulling over whether to stick to your New Year's resolutions, we should all be thinking about longevity. For me, I like to focus my fitness efforts in a practical manner that help me perform better outdoors. That's why, for the past several years, I have been a member of Mountain Tough Fitness. They are a Bozeman, Montana-based company which specializes in all things outdoor fitness and have tailored workouts for people of all physical capabilities. So if you're thinking of getting in better shape, Visit mountaintough.com, that's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H.com, and use the promo code OKS30 for a 30-day free trial. Now, with that out of the way, I am beyond excited to be speaking with our next guest. He is the Program Manager for Trapping Policy and Human-Wildlife Conflicts for the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, better known as AFWA. He oversees the best management practices for trapping in the U.S. He's a big-game hunter an avid trapper, angler, and an endurance athlete who aims to spend as much time outdoors each year as he can. Bryant White, welcome to the show. Hey, thank, thank you, Zach. I'm really excited to be here today to uh, talk about trapping and, you know, really anything else you wanted to talk about. So yeah. I'm excited to be here. Appreciate Perfect. the opportunity. We're excited to get it rolling. I know we've been talking about this for a little while, but I have to admit, I definitely truncated your background and resume quite a bit. You are a long-standing and true advocate for trapping with the work that you do. But maybe to help frame our listeners and get a little bit more grounded and understanding where that passion comes from, maybe you could help us by recalling your first memory of being out on a trap line. All right. Well, so I kind of grew up in a family where we did a lot of hunting. Um, I grew up in Tennessee uh, we were small game hunters because when I was growing up there, there, there weren't any big game deer, you know, deer reintroductions were taking place while turkey reintroductions were taking place. And so we hunted rabbits and quail and squirrels and things like that. And so my brother and I have an older brother naturally got interested in all things outdoors. Um, and so we used to get a magazine called Fur Fishing Game. Uh, it's been around for a long time and we read stories about trapping and you know, these long liners in Alaska and all these really exciting stories. And so my brother and I, we ordered some traps out of fur fishing game and we started our own little trap line catching animals. And from there it went to um, catching raccoons and skunks and possums and cage traps for old ladies at church where the cats were, you know, where they were getting into their cat food and things like that and, and, and just progressed from there. So. Awesome. And, and I don't think we talked about this, but I've lived in Tennessee for a little bit. Whereabouts in Tennessee were you doing this as a kid? 
So I grew up uh, near Franklin, Tennessee, which is south of Nashville. Yeah, I lived in Shelbyville. Okay. Of all places, a little yeah. little town. That's actually where I took my first deer as an adult ever. So I have a very special place in my heart. But with Fur Fish and Game Magazine, you know, something that I believe is still around today. Yeah. Do you remember what traps it was that you ordered and then what the actual cost was? Purely curious on this yeah. one. Well, I think the first traps that we bought were little like number one long springs. Long mm. spring, long spring traps were, I think, still very popular. This would have been in probably the mid-1970s, something like that. So um, they were probably little number one long springs that we were using to to try to capture raccoons and possums and and whatever else would step in a trap for us. <laughs> so they were pretty inexpensive too. If we were uh, buying them. Um, you know, my brother and I were, were making our money back then hauling hay. I think we were getting about five cents a bale or something like that. So the traps had to be pretty cheap or we couldn't have afforded them. So that's awesome. I wish we could go back to that pricing on traps today, but you know, looking back on young Bryant was a career in the outdoor space or in trapping specifically always on the table or what kind of brought you full circle because now you know i don't want to age you by any stretch of the imagination but it's been a little while since the 70s and you're still out there you're still trapped and you're still out in the woods and you have a career in this space was that always part of your vision or did it happen kind of holistically and maybe take us through that trajectory of your life and how you landed where you are now at afwa yeah well that's an interesting question zach you know i was always um an avid hunter and angler Trapping sort of took a back seat probably when I was in high school and college. Just, you know, trapping is labor intensive. It's a labor intensive process. It's not like you can just go out and trap one day and, and you're done, right? You set those traps, you're going to run that trap line for a long time. You've got animals to skin and, and all these kinds of things. So, um, but no, I, I kind of lost interest in it probably through high school and college. And then after college, I started getting interested in it again. Um, and had kind of a different career path for a while, um, but I was still able to pursue hunting and angling and then got back into trapping in that other career. And then as I was finishing up graduate school for my second time, um, I saw an opportunity. You know, there weren't really a lot of jobs out there related to trapping unless you wanted to get on with maybe wildlife services or, or someone like that, that you know, uses trapping a lot for damage control. And I was interested in that, but I saw a really sort of interesting academic position, uh, research kind of position, and I, and I jumped on that and was lucky enough to get it. And, you know, interestingly, when I took the job, it was a three-year term position, mm. uh, which I've turned into a 22-year position now. So it's gone well, you know, uh, it's been, a, been very successful, so. Well, that's awesome, I'm sure. If you were able to talk to uh, the younger self, you'd probably be pretty excited to see where things ended up. So yeah. let's maybe talk a little bit more about that 22-year-plus career that came off of an initial three-year contract. So maybe talk a little bit about AFWA, because you know I'm a trapper, and until you and I got connected, and we can talk a little bit more about how we got connected later, um, what it is, like wh what it does, is it a subset of U.S. fish and wildlife? Is it solely independent? Maybe help frame what AFWA is and what it does for listeners if they don't already know. 
Okay, so um, AFWA, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, we are kind of a non-government organization. Uh, I guess we're like a 501c3 or something like that. Um, but we've been around since 1902. So oh, wow. been around for a long time. And all of the state fish and wildlife agencies are members of our association. Most federal agencies that do anything relative to managing wildlife or habitats, like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, uh, like USDA, National Park Service, BLM, U.S. Forest Service, they're all members of the association as well. And then we have about 60 different non-government conservation organizations that are also members, things like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, National Wild Turkey Federation, National Rifle Association. Um, all these organizations are members as well. And so uh, what AFWA does is we have about 90 different committees, working groups, subcommittees, task forces, where the state and federal and non-government conservation organizations can all work together at the national, sometimes the international level, to do big picture conservation. Mm. So we're heavily involved in, you know, all types of conservation across the U.S. We also engage with uh, what's called CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species. Um, I'm also I work with several groups that are part of the IUCN or the International Conservation um, uh, for Nature. Um, which is an international group as well. And so that's what AFWA does. We kind of engage across the board, uh, across borders on issues. And most of our staff are in Washington, D.C. So most of what we do is relative to legislative policy funding, making sure that state and federal agencies and non-government organizations get funding from the government to do a lot of the big picture things that they need to do. That's amazing. And, you know, to put it bluntly, you know, it sounds like you guys do widespread work. Like you said, Ducks Unlimited is involved, the state agencies, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. But, you know, being on a trapping podcast, why should trappers care? I, why should trappers be privy to and understand the work that AF was doing from a trapping perspective? Yeah. So what what we've done with trapping, and it, it's a long story. I'll try to abbreviate it as much as I can. We, we, we have plenty of time. So give us okay. give us the rundown. OK, so um, we started something called the, the program to develop best management practices for trapping back in 1996. Um, and the way that that program started or the reason that that program started is that uh, within the European economic community, which it was back then, now it's the EU, but the European economic community uh, passed a regulation in 1991 where they banned the use of foothold traps within the European Union. Hmm. They also banned the import of fur from any countries that used foothold traps. So that basically would have ended the fur trade for the United States. Our trappers would have had no place to sell their fur at the time. Uh, and it would have been disastrous for fish and wildlife agencies as well, because there wouldn't have been trappers out there doing the good work that they do, um, you know, to control various species and, and those, you know, manage habitats and those types of things. So um, um, the association of fish and wildlife agencies, we sat down at the table with the EU over about a six year period uh, from 1991 to about 1996, 
We finally signed an agreement with them that they would continue to allow our fur to come into the union because that's where most of the fur markets were at the time. Um, it was super important. Um, and, you know, the, the agreement stipulated that we would develop best management practices for trapping um, and evaluate traps through a number of different criteria to try to improve trapping in the United States so that so that our fur trade could continue with the EU. And so uh, based on that agreement, this program started and, you know, it's been running since 1996. So I have a lot of question, questions around the BMP, so the Best Management Practices Program. Uh, but to start, in that time since 97, are there any interesting findings that just jump out at you in your mind that kind of came about from some of the different studies? Well, there, there are a lot of things. First of all, you know, at that point in time, we did not really have any scientific uh, data on how traps perform. We just didn't know. Uh, could we capture animals, you know, by some humaneness standard, which hadn't even been developed at the time. That's one of the things that, that I could talk about is how we developed the humaneness standard. But we, we had no idea how traps were going to perform. Um, and, you know, we found out some, some really good things. But, but probably the thing, Zach, that, that I always found most interesting were um, what we refer to now as cable restraint devices or live capture snares. Mm. Um, we usually call them just CRDs. Um, how well they perform. You know, when we started this testing, it wasn't intuitively obvious to me that you could put a metal cable around an animal's neck and cinch it up tight and hold that animal in place and, and not kill that animal. You know, and, and but what we found is that, you know, cable restraint devices for all the species that we've tested them on, which are beavers, bobcats, coyotes, red fox, gray fox, raccoons are about the most um, humane traps, the least injury. They cause the least amount of injury to animals, um, you know, based on most of the other trap types that we've tested. So that was a real surprise to me. I thought when we started this testing to live capture animals with with you know metal cables that probably wasn't going to go real well but it did it was fantastic um, that's so awesome. that's that's why we do science sometimes because you don't you can't always look at something until how well it's going to perform until you actually put it out there in the field and give it a try yeah that's amazing and and for those listening that's how bryant and i actually got connected it was through idaho trappers association and idaho fish and game where bryant was looking for trappers in i believe idaho montana and maine for a specific bmp study on live trapping martin uh, following the same principles of very rigorous uh, well-documented approaches of trying to get martin in a live trap with a nesting box in order to kind of understand the efficacy of those traps so i ultimately was able to get put in contact with bryant and have spent the past several months finding out how hard it is especially with a very short and not snow-filled winter, uh, how hard it is to get an animal into a live trap who is pretty wary in the first place. But that said, you know, all of these different studies from the BMP perspective, you know, you follow rigorous science, you're sending, you know, the carcasses ultimately to get studied at labs by scientists. You, you're wrapping this all up into studies for efficacy of foot traps. 
live traps, cable restraint devices. How does that all funnel back to helping preserve trapping? And this is kind of a twofold question. So you're familiar with what's kind of happened in New Mexico with recreational trapping. You know, yep. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. And then what and how these studies that AFWA and BMP are doing directly correlate to helping us preserve our trapping heritage? It's a multifaceted question. So yeah, you could take one part or all of it, but would love your input. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, back in the nineties, when we were going through the process with the, the European union, one of the things that we realized we needed to do is um, in order to evaluate traps properly was to develop a standard that we could use that everybody would agree was a good standard. Um, and so that way our research would have credibility um, and we would be able to say, yeah, we can catch animals humanely or, or we can't. We, we didn't know. Uh, so we worked with the American National Standards Institute or ANSI. Um, which is a pretty authoritative standard. It's our standard setting body here in the United States. They set standards for everything from bicycle helmets to seat belts and things like that. Um, and through ANSI, we liaison with ISO or the International Organization for Standardization, which is the standard setting body for the world. Um, and so that's how we develop the protocols that we use and the standards that we use in order to evaluate traps was through through ISO. So ISO kind of developed that protocol and those standards that we use. And one of the things we knew that we needed to be able to do with all of the um, attacks on trapping, you know, the, the main attract, the main attacks on trapping at the time were trapping is cruel, right? We're just maiming animals. Uh, we're hurting them, you know, excessively. Um, so we needed a standard. So, you know, could we, could we study that and see if that's really true or not? And um, you know, fortunately, what we have been able to find out is that there are many, many traps out there um, that we can use to capture, you know, pretty much every species of animal uh, with in a very humane way. So, you know, since we started the program in 1996, off the top of my head, uh, we've conducted over 600 individual studies um, across 42 different states, and we've studied about 750 different trap types everything from the cable restraints that I mentioned to cage traps to foothold traps, body grip traps, foot encapsulating traps, um, you name it. If it's a trap out there, you know, we've studied it. The only thing we haven't looked at um, is killing snares. Um, our partners in Canada uh, are in the process of, of doing that as well because this, this trap research effort, it's a worldwide effort. Uh, so there are researchers in the EU, in the UK, um, in New Zealand, um, in Canada, in Russia, that are actually doing the same kinds of research that we are. So we partner with them on different types of research in different places and, and uh, make sure, you know, it all works out. So what we're trying to do to benefit trappers is to study traps in, in every way that we can. Uh, we look at humaneness. We look at selectivity. Uh, so we want to make sure that we can set traps in a way to target certain species and avoid others so we can avoid dogs and, and cats and these types of things. Uh, we look at safety. We make sure that the, the traps that we recommend meet certain safety standards, that they're not dangerous for a trapper to use, that, they're, um, that we can set them in ways that they're not dangerous to the public that might come in contact with these traps. 
Um, we also look at efficiency. We want to make sure the traps that we recommend that our trappers use, that, that they work. You know, we're not using pillow traps uh, just because they're humane. We're using real traps, um, you know, some of the best traps out there. Um, and just make sure that, you know, when agencies are trapping animals for research or whatever, when damage control, when trappers are trying to capture animals, they have traps that are really going to work to capture animals efficiently. Um, and then we look at practicality. We want to make sure the traps we recommend, you know, meet a lot of different criteria that we have to make sure that they're practical. People are going to invest quite a bit of money into this, put a lot of hard work into using these devices. We want to make sure they work well for them. So we try to look at all of those things. And then we put all of this information together, Zach, in our BNP documents. Mm -hmm. um, so a trapper can look at that document, say on Eastern Coyotes, see all the different traps that we've tested that meet all the criteria and use those. And then we've used these extensively to, uh, and then a lot of other products that we developed to help agencies. You know, one of our goals with this program was to sustain regulated trapping, to make sure that trappers continue to have the opportunity to go out and do what they like to do. Um, and so, you know, we put these documents together, we provide them to agencies, and we get involved in a lot of legislative activity to try to help agencies maintain their trapping uh, to make sure they have the information so that they can counter the arguments of animal rights groups out there that would like to see trapping in. And, you know, in, in some cases, you know, like the New Mexico situation, basically, boy, that was, that was a tough situation. It came down to a commission vote and I think uh, lost it by one vote, you know, one vote. We were that close. Um, and, and, and let me pause you right there, Brian, only because I, I want to make sure we don't lose a few of these really important threads before we go into New Mexico, because I want a little more okay. information on that, too. But I think there's a few things you put in there that are beautiful that we need to, as trappers, as a trapping community, really think about. So the best management practices, studies that have been done for different species, for different types of footholds, can trappers trap manufacturers all find that readily available online and where would they find those things to a understand and b potentially arm themselves with better statistics when they do come in contact with somebody who might be you know anti-trapping or you know initially adverse to this yeah. way of life yeah so we we stay in pretty close close contact with all the state fish and wildlife agencies um, you know, I work with those agencies directly. We work through organizations like the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, which you're probably familiar with, which is a legislative organization, you know, on Capitol Hill also. Um, but we have a couple of different websites where trappers can go and, you know, download those BMP documents, look at those BMP documents. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know if you can post those somewhere, but, but I can give you those. Um, and, um, we also usually have representation at the National Trappers Association, their annual convention, uh, sometimes the Fur Takers of America, their annual convention. And then we work pretty closely with, um, you know, some of the some of the folks who are involved with the NTA and FTA, the FTA, the FTA president, Jason Wisniewski, um, the NTA president, John Daniel. And then also there's a guy in Idaho, Rusty Kramer, who. Um, is involved with the media uh, aspects of, of of the NTA, and we work with Rusty as well. So uh, we stay we try to engage with the trapper associations as much as we can. 
We engage with the state agencies. We have our websites. But you know, the, the bottom line, Zach, a lot of trappers are hard to reach because there are trappers that are not involved with, you know, a trapper association. Um, and so we're trying to figure out more and better ways to get information to those folks, uh, maybe through some of the trap manufacturer websites and outlets through state fish and wildlife agency regulations that they publish, just getting some of our information in there so folks can look at those because most trappers do probably check their regulations every year to make sure something hasn't changed. So, yeah, no, I think that's great. And what we'll do is we will put all of those links in the show notes as well. So anybody listening to this across any uh, podcasting platform, they'll be available to you there. So go look at them, read them, learn something, share it with other trappers who might be uh, sitting on their combine and not be at a computer. So uh, yeah. we, we get a wide array of folks, but hopefully people listening to this will take a little action to go read and recognize that there's been a lot of effort over the past 20 plus years to provide this information for folks to you know, not only make you a better trapper in a lot of instances, but also to help preserve it. So you know, with that said too, I do want to move on to the New Mexico topic because I I know very little. All I know from my perspective and the folks I've talked to in New Mexico, um, and I'm actually going to have the uh, president of the New, Max New Mexico Trappers Association on the podcast here in the coming weeks to have a okay. conversation with him. But could you maybe give a brief of what happened? I mean, you mentioned that it came down to a commission vote, but is it all trapping, recreational trapping? Is there still you know, nuisance trapping allowed? I don't know the full spectrum. But maybe tell us a bit about that and, you know, maybe the why and, you know, what, what can be done to prevent that in other states? Yeah. Wow. That, that's a tough one. You know, that that's something that we there are similar initiatives that happen in different states almost every year. You know, there there's uh, been some issues in Vermont most recently where, you know, there's some pretty strong efforts being made there to try to ban trapping. Uh, different things that have happened in Florida, Montana, you know, really all over the U.S. And I think we were all pretty surprised by the outcome in New Mexico, um, considering the issues and, and, and various things that have happened there. But um, and I'm, I'm sure the president of the Trappers Association would will be able to speak to this a lot better than I can. But, um, yeah, we engaged with New Mexico. We provided them all the information that we could. And I think that information was provided um, to the right people to help them make the right choice. Um, but things don't, sometimes people make choices for, for other reasons, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and that's probably what happened there. But I think it was essentially a ban on all trapping on public lands. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't even think you can use cage traps. Now, I may be wrong, but I think it banned all trapping on all public lands in New Mexico. And I think it's just relative to public lands. It's not like an outright ban on all trapping as it was in California, uh, you know, many years ago. Um, and as has happened in some other states like Massachusetts and, you know, Colorado, certainly you can still use cage traps and they've changed some legislative practices there to allow foothold traps on private land with special permits. But, mm. um, yeah, New Mexico was just a, a ban on trapping on public lands. And, and it's really the same here in Arizona. Um, you know, there's no trapping on public lands except with cage traps. And but I don't think in New Mexico you can even use those. So and so that is really the work of some, you know, high folks who are high up. Uh, Senator 
you know, that I'll, I'll not mention unless you want to, but um, that was heavily involved with that and um, essentially made that happen. So. Yeah. I mean, for folks, you can Google it and find out who that is. Um, but it, this is a good segue question then, you know, if you had to boil it down, what advice would you give to trappers, whether they're in New Mexico now fighting to get their rights back or, you know, some of these states like Washington, where they're talking about a, a ban on fur sale, what would you give if you had to give one piece of advice to trappers that want this to stick around for generations for their kids, for their kids' kids? What can they do today to help mitigate the risk of losing this you know, privilege that we have as outdoorsmen and women? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's probably two big things I would say, you know, work, work through your trapper association and get to know your wildlife commissioners. Get to know your senators, get to know the people who can make decisions to, you know, to help or, or destroy what you want to do. Um, get to know those people and, you know, make sure they understand trapping and, and what it is you like to do. That That's probably my first piece of advice is get to know the people at the at the top of the food chain who are going to make those decisions um, and, you know, get to know them well enough that they're going to listen to you. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, be smart with your own trapping. Don't set traps in places where, you know, you're going to catch somebody's hunting dog or something like that, because, you know, catching the wrong dog in the wrong place in the wrong situation can could be the thing that ends trapping, you know, for, for your state. Um, so those would be my suggestions. Get, get to know the people in the commission. Get to know your senators, your congressmen. Um, and then, yeah, just just be smart where you set your about where you set your traps. Perfect. And then another question in the same vein is with all your experience in trapping, you know, from a young kid till now, all of the studies you've been a part of. What is the biggest misconception about trapping that you think is floating out in the public? Oh, well, so so that's a real interesting question, Zach. Um, we survey the public occasionally. Um, you know, one of the things that I do is I get grants to do different projects that we want to do. And we have done several public attitude surveys. And interestingly, usually what happens when we engage the public about trapping, we usually engage them about issues like hunting. We kind of ease our way into trapping to start talking about that because sometimes people have a pretty negative conception about that for whatever reason. Uh, but a lot of people, their first response is trapping. Do people still do that? I don't think people do that anymore. Mm -hmm. That's usually the response that we get. People just don't even realize that that activity um, is going on out there. Um, but then, two, usually the first thing people think is that it's cruel. You know, oh, trapping is so cruel. It's you know, people shouldn't do that, and that's because. That that is the perception that I think animal rights groups have really sold, um, you know, to people in the United States with billboards and PETA ads and, you know, different things like that, that that people have seen they or or Walt Disney movies or whatever it is, you know, uh, where they've seen that. And so that that's really, you know, one of the reasons we had to really get a good scientific program going so that we could effectively um, deal with that message that trapping's cruel. Now we can say, well, you know, we've studied it scientifically. 
And there are a lot of traps that folks can use that are very humane, that meet the, the highest humaneness standard um, that there is out there. Because quite frankly, nothing's ever been done like this for fishing or hunting uh, mm-hmm. or, or anything else. But we've scientifically evaluated the humaneness of trapping. And I think that's something we needed to do. And it's it's important. So that survey you mentioned, when is the last time you did that national survey? And are there any other ones coming up that you know trappers listening to this podcast or other podcasts could participate in? Oh, okay. So now the survey of trappers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. So um, one of the things that we are going to do this year, and we have to work through the state fish and wildlife agencies to gather information. Um, but in 1992, 2004, and 2015, and in fact, um, those previous surveys are available on, on that website that, that you'll post eventually. Folks can actually go and look at those and see the types of questions that we ask. But uh, we are going to survey trappers nationally. We'll probably end up surveying seven to 10,000 trappers. And then, of course, the the organization that we work through to actually conduct the survey, they make sure that it gets weighted properly. So we get so many trappers out of each state based on how many trappers they have and those types of things. So they work out all the uh, statistical um, factors that need to be figured, you know, to make sure we get a really good accurate survey of what trappers in the U S are doing. But um, through that survey, what we're going to do is, you know, try to find out um, why trappers are, engaged in trapping. We know that, you know, fur values aren't nearly what they used to be. Um, So we're trying to figure out what are the motivations of trappers that are out there, you know, still trapping. Um, We want to find out what kind of traps they're using, what species are they most interested in, um, and then also find out some economic demographic sort of information from these folks as well. Because as, as you and I were talking earlier, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does a survey every five years of hunters, anglers, and and uh, wildlife watchers, they used to call it, um, survey all those folks about, you know, what their interests are. It, and it's a lot of economic and demographic information, but Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't survey trappers about trapping. And so that's where AFWA steps in, and we try to sort of replicate that survey with trappers only um, so that we have the information we need to um, be able to interact with trappers at the national level. Awesome. So and, and promote trapping at the national level, which is what we need. So folks listening, be on the lookout through your either state agency or, you know, if you're part of you know, national fur takers or national trappers yep. association. And and will that be this coming year or in the next two years? When will that come out? That, so we hope to implement that survey sometime in May or June. Of this so it's year. coming very soon. Yeah, it's coming very soon. We've been working on this grant idea, you know, for a couple of years. Uh, we're able to secure the funding. And you know how federal grants work on a, on a one-year fiscal cycle pretty much. So uh, we kicked off in January and uh, we're moving forward with that now. So hope we'll be able to implement that survey in May or June. Perfect. So, so folks, keep an eye out for that. So, Brian, one thing I always like to do is ask a few interesting questions. So sorry to throw this out there, but you look great for your age, but you have been trapping for as long as I have been alive, (laughs) which means you've been on a lot of trap lines. So what is the craziest thing you've ever witnessed on your trap line? Wow. 
craziest thing I've ever witnessed on my trap line. Hmm. Um, I can, I can probably honestly say, uh, you know, since I, I live in Arizona now, so I trap here, probably capturing a javelina in a foothold trap is probably one of the most, you know, I, I've, unfortunately I haven't caught a mountain lion uh, that I had to release, but trying to release a javelina from a foothold trap, it's, it's like a bar fight. It, it's, it's pretty rough, you know? So <laughs> I can imagine. So I did my first archery javelina hunt in Arizona yeah. last January of 2023. And, you know, they were hard to find until they weren't. And we ran into a bunch on our, you know, fourth, fifth day, but they are blind as bat. So I had one run up to me, like not paying attention, like five feet and then grunt and like charge at me. And yeah, that's not a little critter that I'd want caught in a foothold. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're pretty vicious. Um, and, and there's really, you know, they're hard to avoid because they're, they're big. So it's not like you can avoid them with pan tension, you know, in a coyote trap, they're attracted to anything that's stinky. Um, you know, like a lot of the bait and lure that I use in coyote, you know, dirt hole sets and those types of things. They're just attracted to that. And wow. there are plenty of them out there. It, yeah. But like I said, you know, I hunt them a lot too. And they are, they're so small, they're hard to find. But once you find them, it's it's kind of a done deal. But you got to find them first. Yeah, they're pretty cool little critters. So follow on question. So in the intro, in your bio, I mentioned that you also lead up part of the human animal human animal conflict program, which maybe you can talk a little more about, but what's the most bizarre story you've ever come across from just human wildlife interactions? Well, so let me, let me, I'll think about that while I'm talking about, um, so one of the other, um, I guess, groups that I staff for AFLA is our human wildlife conflict working group. Um, I also do feral swine. I also do our black bear program. Um, so I get, I get a lot of the dirty jobs. I call it, call myself the dirty jobs guy, uh -huh. but, um, relative to human wildlife conflicts, it's kind of like with trapping, you know, we try to develop products that are going to help agencies deal with the things that they have to deal with and do the things that they need to do and maintain public acceptance for those activities. Um, you know, and that's exactly what we're trying to do with trapping. You know, we're trying to make sure we've got all the information in place so that agencies can maintain this activity for people and maintain public acceptance of it. Um, so we do that with human wildlife conflicts, too. We publish several monographs um, on uh, managing deer in urban areas, managing black bears in urban areas, managing coyotes in urban areas, um, you know, because th there are a lot of members of the public out there who think that that every deer and every bear and every coyote is a wonderful thing. We need to have those in urban areas. And, and that's not always the case. They can cause problems and mm -hmm. agencies need to be able to deal with those problems. And now we're developing another monograph on uh, beaver management. And of course, beavers themselves are, are a real controversial issue right now because they're managed a lot differently in the Southeast than they are in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. um and you know east and there's a pretty big divide there and so you know getting a lot of folks together um to 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 try to deal with that but probably the most interesting you know human wildlife conflicts that that i ever run across are actually bears getting into people's houses um you know if you have a a cabin out somewhere and maybe you just go out there on the weekends and 
You know, you keep food and things in there. Mm-hmm. It, it happens a lot. Bears get into those. They can absolutely destroy a place. Uh, and I've, I've seen places and I've seen pictures where bears have, have gone in and, and really done a lot of damage to places. So, yeah, I'm sure that's a, a fun call for an insurance agent to say <laughs> a bear broke into my uh, my yeah. house or my cabin. Yeah. And cars. And, you know, we work we work with the, uh, the folks that are trying to develop coolers, you know, that are bear proof, the bear proof coolers, the Wildlife Management Institute that kind of runs that. We work with them as well. Um, on some of those uh, black bear, grizzly bear containers. Um, pretty what interesting a, what, stuff. What a cool job, though, just getting to do a little bit of everything. You know, that's uh, that's amazing. So uh, one more hypothetical. This is one thing I like to do, which is a little bit fun. If you had to have your arch enemy, maybe you don't have an arch enemy, but pretend you do, release an animal from a foothold trap with nothing but a rickety catch pole, what animal would it be and why? And maybe it goes back to the javelina, but mm. you know, what, what's the meanest critter you think you'd have to have your enemy uh, release with a catch pole? I think su- surprisingly, I would pick a raccoon. Um, and and here's why, you know, I've I've released a lot of raccoons from traps, and the problem. You know, if you do catch a raccoon in a foothold trap that you'd set, say, for a coyote, um, a raccoon's mouth is really close to his front foot. You <laughs> cannot get to his front foot and be far enough away from his mouth not to get bitten. And raccoons are, they're absolutely ferocious little creatures. So, yeah, maybe a raccoon. Um, that, that's a first for an answer, but I totally get it. I, I've yet to do raccoon trapping or anything like that, which is on my list. We just don't get many up where we're at in Atlanta, Idaho, but there's a lot of passionate coon trappers and hunters listening to this. who will probably be nodding their heads like, yep, yep. (laughs) They could be mean little critters when they want to be. Right. They look so cute and innocent, but boy, when when you try to grab a hold of one they, they get pretty, pretty ferocious. Yep. Same with those Martin that we've been going after, but you know, Brian, this has been an absolute blast. As always, I learned a lot, and I'm sure the listeners did too. I am very proud to have someone as passionate as you fighting for our rights as trappers. Uh, So thank you. Genuinely, I know your whole career and life has been modeled around this and wildlife conservation, and to hear from you about the efforts that do go into it's really empowering, and I hope trappers listening to this appreciate it and figure out how to get involved. So for those who want to get involved, whether that's on some of these BMP programs that you might have a grant for um, or the survey, we'll list the websites. But is there any other way that folks can get in contact with you or folks on your team to figure out how they might get involved? Or if someone's out there listening and wants to figure out how to build a career in this space, just like you did, who do they reach out to and how do we uh, foster those relationships? Yeah, well... I, you know, you can put my contact information on there, Zach. Folks can always reach out to me because I'm always looking for, you know, good trappers to participate in our programs where we're trying to capture animals and do those types of things. Um, I'd say one thing trappers can do is just familiarize yourself with the, with the BMPs that are out there and, you know, try to start using some of those traps. I think you'd be surprised that really some of the highest quality, best traps out there are traps that are in our BMPs. Um, and I, you, you wouldn't be doing yourself a disservice at all 
um, to, to tool up with some of those really good traps that we recommend, you know, for a lot of different species. Um, and yeah, you know, that's the thing. Um, this is the, I, I'm the one person for the entire United States. So there aren't a lot of jobs in this, in this kind of area. And I feel like I've hogged it, you know, for, for 20 years and hopefully I can hog it for a few more years because I, you know, I get to work a lot with hunting and trapping through the agency that I work for. And I'm very passionate about those things. And obviously I'm going to do everything I possibly can, um, you know, to make sure that, that we maintain those activities for, for people to like myself selfishly to continue to enjoy. So, um, but you know, the folks out there that probably do the most trapping, I know agencies are often trying to uh, get trappers to help out with different pro research projects. And if you contact your state fur bear biologist and say, hey, I'm a trapper, have you got anything going on that I can help with? Uh, you'd probably find out that there usually is. Uh, and that's actually for, for folks. Uh, I mentioned it briefly earlier, but how Bryant and I got connected is I had reached out to our state uh, fur bearer biologist at Idaho Fish and Game and had built a relationship with him. So when Brian actually came to Fish and Game to say, hey, we have this grant, we're doing this BMP study on XYZ, do you have any trappers in mind? He was able to connect us, which was a, a great opportunity. So I can just second what Brian's saying, build relationships, You know, whether it's through your own Fish and Game agency, through your Trappers Association, build those out, opportunities will come. And if nothing else, reach out to Brian and we'll provide his email in the show notes. Uh, you know, just uh, keep it clean and send him nice things. Yeah. So. And, and hey, let me say this, too, about about your fur bear biologist there in Idaho. Neat guy. Um, and, and I think it just talks about the passion, you know, that, that trappers and, and hunters have about what we do. Uh, I first met him. I, I won't say his name unless you want me to. Uh, but I first met him uh, when I was in this position. He was an undergraduate student at the University of Missouri. And he came to me and said, you know, hey, I, I'm learning how to trap. I'm, you know, me and this other guy are really interested in this. Have you got anything for us to do? So they started working for me, doing some data entry. I took him out on some projects. Um, and now Corey has gone through his PhD and, you know, he's a he's a real deal fur bear biologist now. And I know he's wanted to do that his whole life. So pretty and exciting to have a guy like that in that position in Idaho. And an active trapper himself. So, you know, yeah, he's actually he one is. of the guys I have pegged to hopefully get on here in the coming episodes to kind of get his perspective on that path as well. And, you know, a lot of these biologists are trappers themselves and yeah. the ones who aren't like to lean heavily on trappers to kind of understand it and um, get information. So, yeah. Bryant, again, I really appreciate this. You know, we'll make sure everything goes in the show notes, but Bryant, Thank you again. Thank you for all the work you're doing. And for everybody listening, we will see you all in the next episode of the OKS Trapper podcast.